When I think about Palm Sunday and that first day, what it would have been like for the eyewitnesses, I try to think of experiences I've had in my life to help me relate to that experience a little bit better. And one of the ones I thought of immediately after reading the text here, preparing for the sermon, was the 2015 Super Bowl parade for the Denver Broncos. A million people, over a million people skipped work and skipped school to go downtown Denver and watch the players drive by on buses and fire trucks and cars and try to get an autograph and shake their hand. And dare I say, it was somewhat of a religious experience as we clamored and celebrated and relished the victory that the Broncos brought to our city. Now rewind with me several thousand years to that Palm Sunday. Maybe that kind of atmosphere is what Jesus experienced, what those first eyewitnesses experienced. As Jesus rides into town, the people are waving palm branches, which may, doesn't, may not seem like much to us, but in the ancient Near East, it was a symbol of victory. And they're shouting at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, O son of David. My king, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That celebration was incredible. But our question for them, the question for us here today in 2021, is what type of Messiah were they actually ushering in? What type of Messiah did the people want versus the type of Messiah that Jesus says in his word he actually came to become, to be? What would his reign look like? What would his rule look like? The kingdom of God. Because there's this growing, divergent thought from what the people wanted versus what Jesus said was his purpose and his intention. So today, to help us do that, to explore that question, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles if you brought one. We're going to look at Matthew 21. If you brought an app on your phone, you can use that. We're going to start by looking at the crowds. Now, what type of people were on this Palm Sunday? Who was it that was actually in the streets of Jerusalem waving these palm branches? And Matthew, his gospel doesn't really tell us much. Instead, we've got to look at the other Gospels to get a clue of the makeup of the crowd. And the first place we go is Luke. Luke flat out says that the majority of those people were actually already his disciples, his followers. Mark's Gospel tells us that many of the people there were women, friends of his, partners in ministry from his time in Galilee. They would go with Jesus to on, on these different missionary journeys, and they saw Jesus do incredible miracles. They heard a lot of his teaching. And lastly, John tells us that many people there were from the city of Bethany. That's just east of Jerusalem. We looked at that a few weeks ago as part of our sermon series for Lent. That's the hometown of Mary and Martha and, of course, Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead. But the point is this, and it's, it is an important point. The majority of the people that were praising Jesus on this Palm Sunday were his passionate followers. They believed on some level that Jesus was the coming and promised Messiah or Savior. These weren't like your passive Jewish people who just kind of happened to be there for the, the Feast of the Passover. They were passionate followers. So then we look more intensely at the phrases that they put on Jesus, they bestow upon him. That tells us even more about what they were thinking. It says in Matthew uh, 21... They called him Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is a Hebrew, word of Hebrew origin, and it literally means help us or save us. They were crying out to Jesus, help us, Jesus. Save us, O son of David. Save us, O king. 
Question then is, save us from what? Well, again, we look at this phrase, the son of David. This is a messianic title. And if you're newer to Christianity, if you're exploring Christianity, watching today here at church, it's important that you understand who David was to connect him to Jesus. For the Jewish people, for the Israelites, David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He's known by King David. To put that in context for us, we can understand that's kind of like how in our history classes we look back with great fondness and reverence towards our founding fathers like George Washington or 100 years after that, Abraham Lincoln. And, and we know that our country would not be the same without their contributions. And so we look at them with reverence, with awe. Well, the Jewish people, you can multiply that probably times a thousand because it had been a thousand years since the reign of King David, which they would call the glory days. And they wanted those glory days back because right now they're in Roman occupation. They're not free to worship how they want to worship. They're not free to live how they want to free, uh, to, to be in freedom how they want to live. And so they're looking at Jesus, the son of David, as the long-awaited promised Messiah. But their version of Jesus is one who would come with military might is one who would come as a great conqueror to take the kingdom of Israel by force, to restore it to the glory days. That's what they wanted in Jesus. There's one big problem. That's not the type of Messiah Jesus said he was going to be over and over again in Scripture. They're missing something. And I find this pretty amazing to me. I don't know if you've ever thought this before, but as I read Scripture, many times I think, if I had only seen the miracle that the disciples had seen, if I had only been able to sat, sit at the feet of Jesus, to ask him the questions that are on my heart, to hear one of his amazing sermons, surely I would never lack faith ever again if I just saw one of those things. But the disciples incredibly miss this time in and time out. And one of the greatest examples of this happened just one or two days prior in Matthew chapter 20. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, see, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered, and they will condemn him to death, and he will be flogged and crucified. I really don't know how much more clear Jesus could be. But amazingly, right after this, if you read this in Matthew chapter 20, uh, one of the mothers of the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, and she says to them, I want you to make my sons the greatest in your kingdom. Put them on the left and the right. Those of you who have kids here today or have had children in the past, this is kind of what it's like to be a parent, right? Where you tell your kid something and it goes in one ear and right out the other. The disciples are basically grown children. And Jesus kind of shakes his head. You can imagine him doing this. And he says, you guys, you're not getting it. This is why I have come. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, not just for the disciples, but for many. The 12 disciples didn't get it. The larger crowd surrounding Jesus doesn't seem to get it. And I wonder if here today, if we can be honest with ourselves and admit on some level, we don't always get Jesus. Is there any part of your life where you want Jesus to do something for you that maybe he didn't come to this kingdom, this earth to do for you? Are you trying to put Jesus in a certain type of box and have him serve you rather than you serve him? Well, there's a way we can test this. It's by looking at our idols, examining any false gods that might be in our heart. 
couple days ago, this is our, our spring break for our kids. It's Littleton spring break. And my wife, Amanda, and my son, JJ, they were off doing something. And so Man- Madison and I, our daughter, had a daddy-daughter day. And I decided to introduce her to, in my opinion, the greatest movie franchise of all time, minus the fourth movie, Indiana Jones. I know, the fourth movie. What were they thinking? No one knows. Indiana Jones, the very first movie, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, we find our hero, Indiana Jones. He's an archaeologist. He's a scientist. He finds and uncovers this ancient lost idol, a god that was worshipped by the people in the country. He takes it, he escapes from this temple, and he's met by some very primitive people who are angry with him for taking this idol. Now, I show you this because I think my temptation, maybe yours is, when you hear that word idol and false god, you might think to yourself, well, that's for primitive cultures. That's for ancient cultures. That's what they did in the Bible times. I, I would never worship, obviously, a false god. That's, that's beyond me. The problem is that's not a biblical definition of what an idol is. If you read especially Galatians, Paul unpacks in great depth what it means to be serving an idol, to fall into idolatry. And Martin Luther, a great theologian, he summarizes it like this when talking about the first commandment. First commandment, God says, thou shalt have no other gods. This is how Luther defines what a God is. A God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. And here's the way we can summarize it. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, that is really your God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, that is really your God. And in that definition, we can admit that there's a million different opportunities to commit idolatry, to have a false God, to put our heart in something false that that doesn't give life, that doesn't save, that doesn't help us. And to help us understand this even further, I want to try to condense all idols, all a million idols into three categories. The idol of power, of comfort, and of control. Well, what's the idol of power? This is anything that has to do with things like success, with winning, with influence. And to make it real for you today, you know, something that we're going through right now as a family, my kids are now playing competitive sports. And we live in this world of competitive sports, and it's so easy for us to build our weekly, monthly, yearly schedule around the kids' sporting events, their practices, the training, the games, and then at the end of the week, fill it up with, oh, maybe we've got some time to do some Bible study, or be in worship, or talk about things, or even live a life of service. We're so busy sometimes, we don't even have time to serve other people. Examine your heart today. Is there anything, any idolatry of power going on in your heart that is competing for your heart and your affection and your love? Comfort. Comfort's one that I think is very difficult for us. We live in a very wealthy society. We have so much opportunity for and access to things and and so much money and, and things available to us. It's very easy for us to fall into the realm or the idol of comfort. And comfort can affect everything from our relationships. You know, for example, if, if God has convicted you of a sin against another person, and if you find yourself resisting wanting to tell them or say to them, I'm sorry, because you don't want to admit that you sinned in the first place, the God of comfort you might be serving. And money, let's talk about money. 
If you're constantly thinking about how much money you have or don't have or striving for more money or a bigger house or a bigger car or the most comfortable retirement you can have, if you're trying to avoid all forms of stress, if you don't want to share your faith in Jesus because it might put you in an uncomfortable situation, examine your heart. Maybe there's an idol of comfort that is resting there. And this last one, control, I really, I really don't want to even get into this. This is my issue. <laughs> I was talking to Pastor Nate on Thursday as we were getting ready for, for this weekend, and I was kind of stuck in my sermon, and he showed me this book that actually gave me this idea for these, these quadrants or these categories of idols, and I'm reading it, and I see control, the definition of control, and I go, oh, yeah, that's me. Definitely, that's me. But then I said, now, I would do it a little bit differently. I'd put this quadrant over here and this thing right over here. And Nate's laughing at me going, yeah, your, your issue is definitely control. At least you're self-aware, you know. But if you spend more time planning than praying, if you have a hard time letting go of decisions that are made that you disagree with and, and can't accept, or think back on this last year of this pandemic that we did together, in my opinion, this is probably the biggest idol that was exposed during the pandemic, the false belief that we can actually control our lives. Our lives are so out of our control, and it scares us which is exactly why Jesus came to be our Savior and our Messiah in a completely unorthodox and paradoxical and different way. He said, I came to not be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and you're included in that because he wants to free us from this sense of serving a false God precisely because it's false. An idol can't save you and I don't can't rescue you, and I don't can't help you have the best life that you want to have because you're following after the wrong thing. Because what really happens when we serve idols is that we fall into servanthood to the idols. And look, all these things I mentioned are good things. Money is good. Food is good. Relationships are good. Our job, our house, all these things are good things. But when we put them at a higher level than God intended them to be, you see, we fall into bondage to those things. We begin to serve them because we can never have enough power. We can never have full control of our lives. And when we surround ourselves in comfortable situations, we're not living the life God actually wants us to live and asks us to live, which sometimes means we have to get out of our comfort zone. So we can relate to those people on that first Palm Sunday who wanted Jesus to come to be a certain type of Messiah to serve their idols of power and control and comfort. And just imagine what would have happened if Jesus said yes. If Jesus said yes to their request and he came into Jerusalem as a conquering hero, he takes it by force, all the people would have gotten at that point was a different emperor. They wouldn't have been freed. Instead, Jesus shows us a different way. And I want to close by looking again with fresh eyes at Philippians chapter 2. Listen to how Paul describes the purpose, the intent, the character of Jesus, your Messiah. He writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross, he emptied himself. What that means is he deprived himself. He deprived himself of power. He deprived himself of comfort. He deprived himself of control to expose those false idols for what they are, being false and helpless and weak. And he went to the cross and died. What that means for us today, here's the practical application, is that when Jesus died on the cross, so did your idols. So did your sin. And in repentance, when we turn to Christ and we ask for forgiveness, repentance means to turn from your sin. When we turn, we turn into the arms, the open arms of our Savior Jesus on the cross who welcomes us with grace and forgiveness and mercy and truth and real life. And then three days later, we know from Scripture that Jesus rose from the dead. And look, this was a pointless sermon. You just wasted 15 minutes of your life if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In that case, we should just go on and live the best life we think possible to follow our heart, to make ourselves happy, to get as much power and wealth and comfort as we can because all of this is meaningless. But if Jesus rose from the dead then, which the Scripture says he did, which I believe, which I pray you believe, then it changes everything. We now have hope. We now have hope that when we do confess and repent, Jesus meets us in forgiveness. And so what it means is if you are striving for power, you can look at the ultimate power which Jesus shows us is actually found in weakness and in serving others and in being a blessing to other people and humility putting others above yourself. If you've surrounded yourself by trying to be in great comfort and security, you can look no further than Jesus who gave up his comfort to create a secure place in us, for us, in heaven forever. What that means is we can go out in great courage. We can have that difficult conversation. Yes, it's gonna be uncomfortable. It's gonna be awkward. But God promises that he's there for you, walking with you, helping you have that conversation, helping you be generous with your money, helping you be generous with your time to bring into this world the real kingdom of God. And if you have a hard time letting go of control, Jesus shows us through the death and resurrection of, the cross, of, of, of himself when he died on the cross, he let go of all control a horrible thing, at least at the time for the disciples. What that shows us when he rose from the dead is that God can use even these bad things, these things that slip out of our control for his glory and for his good. And so if you're right now struggling with something, it might be a difficult thing, it might be a bad thing even, turn to the one who let go of his control so that you could have eternal life, rest secured in a relationship with Jesus. May this Palm Sunday, and as we turn our attention to Holy Week, may we be the type of people who look forward to Good Friday and the death of Jesus and relish in the hope of Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus died and risen for you. Amen.